Heavenly Father, we just come before you in corporate worship this morning with full and grateful hearts because you are the one that holds all things together. We thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ, that in Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. What a truth, Father. What an encouraging truth to meditate on and to worship and praise on this morning as we consider the heaviness, the brokenness of the world around us, our own lives, which are so often embattled by sin and the struggles that we have in this flesh. We thank you for the reminder and the truth that you hold all things together. We thank you for the reality that your sovereign hand is over all and that you are in process to not only redeeming us, but redeeming all of creation unto yourself until the, till the day that we will enjoy eternity forever renewed in your kingdom. Thank you, Father. Until that day, God, we worship you. We thank you for the opportunities we have each week to gather corporately, to come together as a body, to find encouragement and hope in our togetherness, to find encouragement and hope in our worship, and to find encouragement and hope in your word. And so as we turn to your word now during our time of worship, would you open our hearts and minds to the truths that you would have us to see today? Holy Spirit, would you minister to us through the word? Help us to lay aside all distractions and weights and things that we brought in so that we can hear from you. And may our time together bring encouragement and strength and edification to us. And may all of this collectively bring glory and honor to your name. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for joining us in worship today. If you're our guest, Thank you for worshiping with us today. My name is Dave Eatman. I serve here on Cross, uh, on staff at Cross as pastor of teaching and spiritual formation. Our lead pastor, Taylor, is on vacation this week with his family in some much-needed uh, time of R&R, so please be in prayer for him. Uh, but I'm grateful that allows me an opportunity to be here uh, with you today. As you know, we have been, if you've been with us, we have been walking through for several months now the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we've been looking at Jesus sermon to his followers, to those uh, uh, that gathered, as Blaine said, on the hillside to hear uh, Jesus teach and preach uh, with the authority of his Father in heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes, sort of, we call that Jesus' introduction, if you will, to his Sermon on the Mount. And the foundational point of that is that, that we are blessed when we recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we are completely spiritually bankrupt outside of Jesus Christ. Building upon that foundation, we've looked at the last several weeks in Jesus' first main point of emphasis on addressing the, the improper and incorrect teachings, the cultural expressions of the religiosity of the scribes and Pharisees of the day. And we saw how Jesus used the construction over and over again. You have heard that it was said, 
to highlight a point of teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes and then correcting that with the statement, but I say to you. Now, as we move into chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount, we're moving to Jesus' next main point of emphasis, beginning with him calling out and highlighting religious hypocrisy. Our American culture, in particular the younger generations, are hungry and on a quest for authenticity, being authentic. According to a 2020 survey, 95% of those in Gen Z have taken action to align their lives with causes that they believe in. And their drive for authenticity and expression of their true identity and advocating for what they believe in is something that drives this generation. And while we see where this can lead when left to be individually defined and not anchored in an objective standard of truth, the marks of authenticity should certainly be normative for those of us who claim to know Christ, for those of us who place our identity in the one who by, him, by his very definition, his very substance is that of truth. Those of us that claim to follow Christ should be those who live truly authentic lives. One of the most common objections that I've heard over the years to church attendance uh, or church culture is that the church is full of hypocrites. People who say one thing, who claim an identity in one thing and yet live lives that are altogether different. And now it's of course to be stated that the church itself doesn't hold a corner on the hypocrisy market. So why do people call this out in the church more than other areas? Because even those outside the church know <clears throat> that we claim to follow one who sets a higher standard. We claim to follow one who expresses the perfection of love and justice and mercy. Let's do a quick check. How many of us in here since following Christ or maybe even this week have done something hypocritical that would not align with your faith? Raise your hand. I'm raising mine higher than all of you, not because I'm standing on this platform, but because as I was preparing this message for us this week and beginning to dive into our need to live truly authentic lives, the Lord was reminding me of times even in my life now where I'm prone to do things that don't represent who I am in Him and my identity in Him. So since we've established that there's truth to this, that we do, we are prone to find hypocrisy among us, let's turn our attention to how Jesus addresses the subject as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. As I was preparing this, my mind went back to um, a period of time when I was a kid, a teenager, and I, I loved basketball. I played basketball all the time, literally all the time. Uh, I, was, I played for the town leagues for several years when I was younger, and I was always like a starter there, but then I moved up to the school league, and I was like third string. So I was thankful to just have a jersey, right? I was, able to, I was good enough to get a jersey and get on the team, uh, but I didn't see a ton of playing time. But I was always, always, always out in my yard practicing for hours and hours, and usually by myself, sometimes with others. And we lived in a rural area, and the road by our house didn't have a ton of traffic on it, but a car would come by every few minutes. And I remember, I, as I was preparing for this message, I remembered and was reflecting on, uh, I can remember I would hear a car coming, and I would set up for a shot that I knew I could make, right? And so as the car went by, I'd take the shot, and I had this like vision in my mind that they're driving by going, wow, like that guy is good at basketball, right? 
And yet the reality is, if by chance somebody did make a note or make a comment to someone in the car that I made that shot, it probably lasted about three seconds. And they moved on to the next thing. It's ridiculous that we do those things. But it's natural as human beings that we want to be affirmed and respected and accepted by others. That's a natural thing. And for some of us, whether because of wounds of our past or maybe other internal, external factors, maybe this drive can be a little bit stronger, more intense. But the Jesus way calls us to a higher standard, to check the motives of our heart for why we do what we do, especially the things that we do in his name. And make sure to ensure that we're, we're seeking to glorify only the Father as we do them and not receive glory to ourselves. As we pick up in chapter six, Jesus is gonna use three examples that call attention to ways a religious crowd of the day was being hypocritical. Today, we're gonna look at the first of those in giving, and in the following weeks, we'll look at the next two in prayer and in fasting. And for each activity, Jesus begins with the phrase, but when you. These are acts that are expected for a child of God. They're normative, normal things that we do, acts of service that we do as we follow Christ. And these very acts are intended to help us get our eyes off of ourselves and to turn our eyes and our hearts and our attention upward and outward. And yet in our depravity, we can turn even these things, even these God-honoring activities and opportunities for the flesh. So let's turn our attention to Jesus' address of, the, of hypocrisy and his first teaching on it around the subject of giving and learn together that the Jesus way seeks only the pleasure of our heavenly father and is unconcerned with the praise of men. First, Jesus gives us, gives us a warning against seeking the praise of men that expires. Let's look again together at Matthew chapter six, verse one. Jesus begins, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Our next section begins with one word of warning, beware. This word beware is a word that means to be on guard against, to watch out for. It's a means of active vigilance against a threat. And right off the bat, we see that this next element of Jesus' teaching is something that is a threat to all of us. It's not something that we can be passive about, something that we can ignore, but rather an active threat to our religiosity. Jesus wants his hearers and he wants us to know that we must be on guard constantly against seeking glory that is only due to God himself. So Jesus tells us to be vigilant against religious performance, to be vigilant against an intentionally, seeking to do an intentionally public act of devotion. He begins by a wide lens. In, in verse one, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. This is a general statement. Anything that we would do in God's name, anything that we would, knew, we would do from the position of our identity as a follower of Christ and for his name's sake, practicing our righteousness, living out our Christianity in such a way that we're hoping others will take notice and compliment or affirm us for it. It's scheduling or performing or arranging or communicating our deeds in such a way that invites the admiration or the praise or the attention of someone else. And sometimes we can be tempted to do this blatantly, like me 
practicing my basketball game in front of others, hoping to be seen. But I believe more often than not, we tend to be pretty clever and crafty, right? Maybe um, ways that are more subtle, but no less subversive. Maybe in the form of how we offer prayer requests in a way that's trying to call attention to something that we're doing. Maybe just happening to mention something in conversation. Maybe using silly statements of false humility, humility before we say something like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but, which is just announcing the fact that we're about to toot our own horn, right? Jesus tells us that this kind of act receives no reward from our heavenly father. And speaking of tooting our own horn, this phrase borrows from a practice during medieval times where the blowing of trumpets was used to announce the coming of royalty or someone of honor or significance. The trumpets would announce that someone of importance and significance was coming, but its true source as an idiom seems to find itself right here in our text and Jesus' teaching on giving. So let's look at verse two. Jesus says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus begins to illustrate this teaching first with the example of giving. And the way he illustrates this is hilarious if it wasn't so sadly true. He gives us the picture of the sounding of trumpets to announce that someone is about to give and do a good deed. It's as if the Pharisee stood up and went, here's my check. Thank you for laughing. Because when I was preparing for my sermon, from the other room, I did that, and Laurie was like, did you just blow a trumpet? I said, yes, leave me alone. You're making me get in my head. It's hard to get more noticeable than blowing a trumpet to announce what you're about to do. And this is the illustration Jesus uses in what we're doing when we try to call attention to ourselves for our acts of righteousness. And what's more, this is not just something that was being done within God's people. He says here, beware of doing that in the synagogues and in the streets. It's beyond just doing it so that our other people within the church see it. It's an impact to our witness, to those on the outside who see us living lives that don't align with the one who has called us to himself. And the entire point of all of this, of the way that that Jesus is calling out worship, was not to worship God or give him glory or not even the noble but secular cause of giving to those in need. It was entirely to be noticed by and subsequently received praise by men. Jesus calls out hypocrisy over in Matthew 15 as well, where he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And the word Jesus uses for hypocrite in both of these texts comes from the Greco-Roman acting world. It's the same word that would be used to describe an actor. Someone who would intentionally put on a mask and act out a part as someone else, all for the sake of drawing the praise and the reward and the accolades of men. And we still have this in our culture today. We have Grammy Awards and Academy Awards and things that we do to award people for being able to act like someone else for their performance, for being someone they're not. And sadly, We can find ourselves doing this even within the church and what is supposed to be our acts of service towards God and towards others. 
Jesus is not calling out the act of giving, of course. He's calling out the motive. Dallas Willard frames it this way, desire for religious respect or reputation will immediately drag us into the rightness of the scribes and Pharisees because that desire always focuses entirely upon the visible action, not on the source of action in the heart. And Jesus says, when our motive is to receive the praise of men, then that is exactly what we get as a reward. However, the warning is that our intentionally public acts that draw attention and praise to ourselves receive a fleeting reward. Let's be honest, it feels good to receive praise and honor and accolades from someone else. And there's nothing wrong with us doing that for others. We should do this. Paul says in Romans 13, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And while in the context, this is speaking directly to honoring Christ with how we live our lives within our earthly nation, which is another sermon altogether, the principle applies to how we seek to treat others with honor and respect. And when someone decides to give us unsolicited praise, we should receive that and thank them for it and give glory to our heavenly Father for it. The teaching here, however, speaks to the praise that we seek to receive, that we seek to draw from others, which ultimately results in empty praise that perishes often with our very next act. I had a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps years ago who had a saying that he said all the time, and I can't repeat it because it was crude, but the teaching of it was right in line with this. You can do a thousand good things, but the moment you do one bad thing, that's what people remember you by. That is a reward we receive from men because unlike our Heavenly Father, people, especially unredeemed people, do not have the ability to remember our sins no more and cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Instead, people, people often do just the opposite where they remember and bring up those things that we have done wrong, that we have done to dishonor them or others and cast those good deeds that we have done out of memory. Seeking the praise of men through intentionally public acts may draw the temporary reward of fleeting praise that feels good in the moment, but it will ultimately pass away. Thus, the Jesus way calls us up to a higher standard and to instead of seeking the praise of men that expires, to seeking the pleasure of our Father that endures. Let's continue reading in Matthew 6, verse 3. Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So as opposed to intentionally public acts meant to draw the attention of others, instead we are called to intentionally secret acts of devotion. As we saw in the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduced each principle he taught with the construction. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And for the next three principles that Jesus is teaching centered around hypocrisy, we see a new construction that should catch our attention. Each time beginning with, but when you, talking about something we should be doing as followers of Christ, and concluding with the statement, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And what we learn here then is for each of these acts of devotion, for giving and for praying 
and for fasting. There is both an expectation that we will do these things as followers of Christ and that each of them carry with them a reward from our Heavenly Father when we do them appropriately. And here today, we are going to spend just the last few minutes of our time looking at the first of these acts of devotion and that of giving. We see here by principle that the giving to those in need is normative for followers of Christ, not just here in our text, but this principle is taught variously throughout Scripture. We're going to look at several Scriptures in rapid fire, just at the ways that we are called to give and how we are called to give. In Proverbs chapter 3, the writer says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. So we see first that we are to give our first and best as a matter of priority. Giving as a follower of Christ should not just be something that we do kind of at the end, something that we do as an afterthought, something that we do if we have some left. Giving is intended to be something that we do as a sacrifice, as an act of worship, as a first priority. We see also that we are to give generously. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus would say, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is the picture of someone scooping into the barrel and not just scooping in and giving what's there, but scooping in and packing it down and scooping in again and packing it down until it can't be packed anymore and it's overflowing. That's the way that we are called to give to others. We see that we are to give sacrificially. In Mark's gospel, we see an episode where Jesus sees something going on in the temple and uses it as a teachable moment for his disciples to show us how we are to give. In Mark 12, 41, it says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus is teaching us that our, that our giving should hurt a little bit. It should be sacrificial in the way that we give because that is casting our dependence and our devotion to our heavenly father. We see that we are to give cheerfully. In, Roman, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're not to look at others and try to match what they're doing. We're not to do it begrudgingly or because we feel like we have to. Our giving should be out of a heart of worship as God leads and directs us to do so. We see that we are to give regularly. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 writes, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And we see here in our text that we are to give inconspicuously. Verse three again says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is giving in such a way that not only are we not seeking the praise of others, we're not seeking the praise of ourselves. We're not seeking to pat ourselves on our back just because we are giving. When I think about the way we give, my mind goes back to uh, when I left my career out in the, in the corporate world and moved into a ministry vocation. Laurie and I have been in vocational ministry for about 10 years now. And I had been working for a corporation for about 17 years. She had been a hairstylist, proprietor of her own salon for a long time. And God called us to leave that behind and move into ministry. And it was an exciting time. It was a faith-building time. It was a scary time. And there were elements and points of time where 
uh, I was like, let's go, I'm locked in, and she was scared to death, and then we'd flip that, and she would be locked in, let's go, and I was scared to death. And as I got to the end of my time where I left my job, we still had, we were raising our financial support to be missionaries with crew military, and we had not raised everything we needed to live off of, but God was calling us to step out of the boat onto the water and to follow him. And I remember sitting down at my desk and seeing the last paycheck in my bank account and go, okay, that's it. And the following Monday, I received a notification that someone had anonymously donated a generous gift into our ministry account. And I tried for weeks to figure out who gave that. And to this day, 10 years later, I still have no idea. Because if I knew who did that, I I wanted to be able to contact them and say, thank you. You have no idea what this means. I mean, this is what God's been doing. And this is how your gift has really helped grow my faith. And I just wanted to, to do that for them. But because of the way they gave, all I could do was give praise and glory to my heavenly father. And that's what God intended from that. Ultimately, we give as an act of worship, a physical sacrificial act in service to others that represents the physical sacrificial act Jesus accomplished for us as he gave of himself as a matter of priority and sacrificially and generously and in a way that, that denied himself and gave glory to his heavenly father. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Jesus tells us that when we give this way, rather than receiving a temporary fleeting reward of empty praise from men, we instead receive an eternal reward that endures from our Heavenly Father. The end of verse four again, Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Giving in a way that keeps the focus on our heavenly father and seeks no credit or calls no attention to ourselves produces eternal, lasting fruit, eternal rewards that do not fade and waste away, but instead endure forever. And some of these rewards are experienced even now in the glory that's given to our heavenly father from the one who receives knowing that we've invoked that in someone else brings a level of reward. Having the inner sense of pleasing the Father, different than patting ourselves on the back for giving, when we do things in obedience to God and we follow him in obedience, we practice our righteousness in a way that honors Christ, there's an inner sense of pleasing our Father. We know that we are pleasing him with that. And as such, it develops increased motivation for righteousness even within us. The more that we follow Christ faithfully, the more that that motivates us to do so as we seek to please the one who has redeemed us. We've already made reference to 2 Corinthians 9. I wanna expand the context a little bit and read a little bit more of that passage. Paul writes, the point is this, beginning in verse six, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
But even though there's in some sense some rewards that we receive now, ultimately, when we give the Jesus way, we are storing up eternal rewards of treasure in heaven. A little bit further down in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 19, Jesus will say, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And this concept of being rewarded in heaven, I think is something that we often maybe misunderstand or misapply. Scripture clearly teaches that just as there will be degrees of punishment for our sin, all within the context of eternal punishment for sin, apart from God in a literal hell, there will also conversely be degrees of reward in response to how we live our lives for Christ, all within the context of eternal life in the presence of God forever. And we learn from scripture that these rewards will be distributed the day we stand before Christ at what scripture calls the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 8, Paul writes of this day. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul is speaking of the rewards. Similarly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 10, according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, loss of the reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And at first pass, when we think about that, we think, man, is that, is that fair? Uh, is that right? Are there gonna be some people that are happier or more blessed in eternity with God than others because of how they've lived their lives? And if we're tempted to think that, we have to make sure that we're balancing scripture with the reality that as a believer in Jesus, the, the sentence, the penalty of our sin has passed. The judgment has passed and has been paid by Jesus Christ. And there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. The day we stand before Jesus at the judgment state of Christ, seat of Christ as a follower of Christ is not a day to be feared. It's a day to look forward to and rejoicing with great expectation. In John 5, Jesus says it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And in Romans 8, 1, Paul says it this way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The balance then on the teaching of heavenly reward is such that while it is true, there will be degrees of reward in heaven based upon how we've lived our lives for Christ. These will not determine our level of happiness or joy or blessing. Certainly as rewards, there'll be things to be enjoyed, no doubt. 
but it's our being in the presence of our Lord forever that will bring us true, lasting joy and peace and happiness for all eternity. The elder team is working through a book, Bible Doctrines, uh, one of Wayne Grudem's uh, works, just deepening our own uh, theological depth and understanding as an elder team. And I like the way he captures this concept of rewards in heaven, talking about the day we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards that follow. Wayne Grudem says, we must guard against misunderstanding here. Although there will be degrees of reward in heaven, the joy of each person will be full and complete for eternity. If we ask, how can this be when there are different degrees of reward? It simply shows our perception of happiness is based on the assumption that happiness depends on what we possess or the status or power we have. In actuality, our true happiness consists in delighting in God and rejoicing in the status and recognition he has given us. If highest status were essential for people to be fully happy, no one but God would be fully happy in heaven, which is certainly an incorrect idea. We give freely and sacrificially because Christ first gave freely and sacrificially to us. And we do this in a way that directs all glory and praise to God alone, not seeking glory or calling attention to ourselves, our Heavenly Father who sees those secret acts, who sees the acts of devotion and the motives of our heart, stores them to our eternal account and prepares for us rewards to be given the day we stand before him. Back in the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we learn that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for that is where true satisfaction comes. When we seek after the false righteousness of the praise of man, that quickly fades and never brings the satisfaction that we're looking for. But the true righteousness that seeks to please our heavenly Father alone provides a lasting peace and joy that nothing in this world can offer. And when it comes to our giving, we should do it in a manner that we're not seeking praise or recognition from anyone but the Father, not even from ourselves. And as we do this, we can be certain that our heavenly Father sees and knows and is rewarding us accordingly. I'm so glad that I could preach this message today, church, not as a message of correction, but as a message of encouragement for this body of believers. Because since I've been here for the last several years, I've been tremendously and repeatedly encouraged by the level of just sacrificial giving and generosity and cheerfulness in not only your financial giving, but how you give of yourselves. What a testimony to this community and the world around us of the way our Lord Jesus gave of himself. And I pray that today's message is an encouragement for all of us to keep on keeping on for his glory as we seek to bring glory and honor to him in this community and beyond. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you today just aware, aware of uh, just our own sin, our own lives, and how it's so easy for us as followers of Christ, as, as individuals who are called to live authentically in a way that brings glory and honor to you, how quickly we can get that out of balance, how quickly we can seek praise and glory that's only due your name. Father, even this week, as I have prepared for this message, you've reminded me of ways in the past and even ways currently to where my life is not aligned with 
who I claim to be, who I am as a follower of Jesus. I thank you, God, for the opportunity to deal with that even this week in preparation for this message. I thank you for this church and this body of believers who does give so sacrificially, so generously, so freely. As a symbol, as an acknowledgement, as an act of worship for the way that you have given and continue to give to us in Jesus. Father, I don't know where each and every person stands in this place today, but I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would do the heart work even now, that you would apply this text even now to help us to grow more and more into your likeness, to help us to grow into the realization that is only the, 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 the hunt, the thirst, the attempts towards true righteousness that will really bring satisfaction, that will really bring joy, that we are living fully for you to the best of our ability and the power of your Holy Spirit, that that brings us the joy and the satisfaction, the happiness we seek and prepares us for the joy and the happiness and the satisfaction that we will all experience with you for eternity as we call on you in faith. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word today. Use it to fulfill your purposes and to achieve your glory. And Father, as we prepare to remember how you freely gave of yourself in Jesus on the cross, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and take communion together as a body in a corporate expression of worship, would you just help us to pause right now? And Holy Spirit, would you just shine light into our hearts? Just as you have done in my own heart this week, would you do it even now and in the hearts of all those present to show us? Are there things that we're doing to receive glory that's only due you? Are there ways that our lives are not in alignment with the identity that we claim as a child of God and someone who's been redeemed in Christ? Are there other areas of our lives? Is there anything that's out of alignment, either by word or deed or attitudes of our heart that need to be surrendered and yielded to you? Father, as you reveal these things to us, help us to remember that it is safe to run to you in confession and repentance. Your wrath has been satisfied on the cross of Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary to fully redeem us. And so when we find that our lives are out of alignment, we simply need to come to you, to turn from that, to confess that to you, to receive your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy that is renewed each and every day. Help us to do that even now and commit in your power to living our lives in a way that honors your name, honors your sacrifice. And as we do so, help us to receive the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that comes from you on behalf of Jesus and his finished work. Thank you for redeeming us. 
Thank you for calling us together as a people. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you corporately and for the time to close our service, remembering what you have done on our behalf. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.